Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi. How'd you know it was me? I have caller ID. Oh, what's it say? With the trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, the podcast from Vanity Fair that is currently covering American Crime Story colon impeachment. I am Katie Rich. And I'm Richard Lawson. Uh, If you have been listening to Richard and Sonia on Succession, this is an impeachment episode. We have a lot going on right now. Just make sure we get all of our things straight. This is the one about uh, power brokers in the corridors of power in America doing terrible things. Um, those are different shows, right? It's that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of them is lightly fictionalized. The other is, well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a real hall of mirrors here. Uh, we are here to talk about we are here to talk about the eighth episode of the season, which I think will probably be known as the Hillary Clinton episode. Um, mm-hmm. Richard, last week, you and I talked about episode seven, which we thought was the Hillary Clinton episode because we saw Edie Falco's Hillary Clinton really come into focus and you spoke with her about it. Uh, but here we are. And this is uh, an episode with some of our familiar characters like uh, Bill Ginsburg and Monica Lewinsky and Ken Starr. But it's really Bill and Hillary and the aftermath of this this scandal going public. Yeah, it's funny. When I talked to, to Edie Falco, she was kind of coy about it. She was like, you know, I mean, they told me, you know, it's a small part. Like, I just, you know, just wanted to be part of the team, whatever. And, you know, this isn't quite the sort of single focus episode that, say, Sarah Paulson got in Mrs. America, but it's still pretty significantly mm-hmm. a Hillary episode. And so I think that Falco was maybe trying to, like, misdirect a little bit about how big um, a role she would have, at least in at least one episode. Yeah, it must be funny working on this show and figuring out what constitutes a spoiler because there's a lot that right. we know, but then the the focus that the show takes is is complicated. And you'll hear a little bit of that uh, later on in my interview with Brad Simpson, who is one of the executive producers on the show, who 
kind of hints at, you know, the star reports coming down the pike, but was trying not to give away too much. So we'll get to that later. So before we get started, uh, we want to go back into our inbox. As always, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We've been getting some great emails from everybody with a lot of just like thoughtful stories about what we all remember from the time. And, you know, I think some people are maybe taking some issue with our somewhat fuzzy memories of the period, which I can't blame anybody for. And, you know, who was really to blame for what Monica Lewinsky went through. But the email that I wanted to uh, quote is from a familiar name. Uh, Richard, do you remember who Michael Isakoff is in this whole story? Isn't he one of those pesky damn journalists? <laughs> he is the one who is uh, maybe a little frustrated with Linda Tripp and all of her nonsense, which who can blame him? Um, so the real Michael Isakoff emailed us, which was such a delight. I think it's, you know, we hear from people who are involved in making these shows sometimes, but it's rare to hear from people who are portrayed on these shows. Um, and he emailed us about what we brought up talking about episode five, which was when Clinton's lawyers were talking to Paula Jones in her deposition and uh, Bob Bennett. Uh, who is a Clinton's attorney, brings up an accusation from a guy named Dennis Kirkland, who essentially accused Paula of not only uh, performing oral sex on him, but several other people. Uh, and he took uh, a photo of pages from his book about the entire uh, scandal, uh, Uncovering Clinton, a reporter story, um, which, you know, we've seen how in the middle of this whole story he was. So, of course, he had a lot to say. Uh, and it's, it's a long segment. I would obviously recommend anybody read the book. But, uh, you know, he points out how Kirkland was maybe not the most uh, reliable witness. He had a, a somewhat checkered background, as uh, Isakoff put, puts it in his book. Um, and so Bob Bennett basically had this story, and he was kind of unclear about whether or not he would use it in the case, but then he would tell it to reporters a lot. Like, he would kind of spread the word around Washington, even if it was not, like, being used in any formal legal context. And I think given the way we've been... We've seen Clinton's attorneys portrayed on the show. That doesn't feel surprising, but it does. Uh, it, it highlighted for me reading this passage just kind of how dirty all of this got and how much Paula Jones suffered as a result of it. Yeah. And as we've seen in various iterations in, in this series so far is like once it's out there, we're not talking about what is codified in a deposition or a court of law or a Senate hearing or anything like that. Once it's rumor, you know, that maybe journalists pass around, you know, at a bar or politicians do or whatever, like it, it kind it, it counts for a lot. And I think mm -hmm. that that's one of the ways that this show, like we talked about way back, I think in our preview episode for this season is that like a lot of this is about in some ways how we got where we are now. You know, I'm yeah. not saying this is like the same thing as like a fake news thing or whatever, but it feels familiar that someone would strategically kind of throw sort of a thing out there, um, even if he couldn't formally use it in any kind of, you know, legal sense. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I think the way that we think about the way fake news and rumors travel now, it's so um, escalated by the Internet. But this really indicates how that kind of thing could travel if you told the right people who were, you know, on the right level levers of power. You could have a lot of influence with a story that, you know, I don't know. If we ever know if this is really true, what Isakoff says in the segment he sent me, uh, Bennett also failed to mention the fact that none of the four other alleged participants in the group fellatio said that they had been part of the in incident Dennis Kirkland described. So take for that what you will, I guess. I'm sorry for I've said oral sex and fellatio already in this episode. 
And I think it's going to get better because there's not as much of it in the episode of the show, but uh, apologies in advance. If you'd like a swear-free version of this episode, that can be found on our website, <laughs> uh, thisamericanlife.org. Does this make you feel uh, like it's bringing out your prudish side of the show? Because I have I have had that feeling many times as we've been recording. This. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess as we were teenagers during all this, maybe we became inured to it, you know. But I, I think <laughs> in this episode, like the shock of say- someone, you know, just saying oral sex to the president of the United States across a t- couple tables. Like, you're like, oh, that must have been a big fucking deal, you know. <laughs> I've really shocked a lot of people. Um, okay, let's get into the episode itself. And uh, as I said, it's pretty much the Bill and Hillary episode. Um, but there is a little bit of Monica in it. There's no Linda. And um, actually, did you miss Linda in this episode? Because I kind of did. I did miss her. But then at least, you know, we got this version of Hillary Clinton you know, yelling about her at one point. And I was like, oh, so she's still remembered. She's still, she's still with us in some form. <laughs> that was make, somewhere that was making Linda really happy that Hillary Clinton was yelling her name when she was supposed to be on vacation. Um, So we do get Monica uh, kind of uh, still in the middle of her hell, basically figuring out if she can get immunity from the star team. Um, And she's paranoid and she's being followed by the press everywhere. And she gets this really fascinating uh, anonymous phone call that says it's from the White House um, where it basically says they're coming after you. And it's not just him. It's her, too. Um, And you'll hear I brought this up with Brad Simpson and he kind of emphasized that it's not necessarily that they were trying to say that Hillary Clinton really was going after her. And we don't see her doing that on the show, but just to give a sense of how intense the stuff coming Monica's way was. Did that moment, did that call stand out for you as much as it did for me? Oh, yeah. Sounded to me like a little bit bit like Elizabeth Reezer. Yeah. Uh, For, um, oh, my God, I'm blanking on her Kathleen Willey. Kathleen Willey, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's who it sounded like. Oh, that's fascinating. I should have asked about that. All right, next week, we'll find out if that was Elizabeth Reezer in a a brief cameo. Um, And so then we... We see her talking to Ginsburg about how she's uh, not getting immunity. Her mom testifying in front of the grand jury. And then there's this four-month jump. And you you see it in a title card, but I see it in Monica's haircut. And as soon as Beanie Feldstein shows up with that kind of... Is it the Rachel? It's not quite the Rachel, but it's very of the same era, right? It's Rachel adjacent. It kind of curves under the chin, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and it's the haircut I think of. When I think mm. of that, because that's, you know, I became aware of her when she was in that public eye to such, to such a huge extent, you know, um, and that yeah. that's the haircut I always kind of associate with her. Yeah, there's a there's a scene where she uh, I think she goes into the star office and she's wearing this kind of like sea foamy pantsuit. And I remember that outfit really well and going along with that haircut. Um, and your heart kind of breaks for her because she's, you know, 24 years old and wearing pantsuits all the time. And you just want her to to go live a normal life, which is what she says she wants to um so she makes a deal with the star team and then she hands over the blue dress uh colin hanks is back uh jackie bennett is back all of our familiar characters and she starts telling the whole thing and that's pretty much all the monica we get in this you do you feel like that was enough for the story this episode's trying to tell yeah i think there's the interesting machination of ken Starr where he wanted ginsburg off the case but then when Lewinsky gets a different lawyer he's like okay now we can make a deal you know He's like, Mm -hmm. I can't make a deal with that guy because he can't win this public, you know, sort of guy who's been decrying Ken Starr the whole investigation the whole way. Um, That would be too much of a public concession to the other side, you know. But once they get this more anonymous lawyer, he's like, okay, now we can work this to our advantage. Um, So I think seeing what what couple levers had to be pulled or whatever to get 
Clinton in front of the star team um, is interesting. And I, I guess in that sense, like that was, I mean, I know that Monica's not done quite yet, um, yeah. but this is the beginning of at least the end of her involved direct involvement in this, you know? And yeah, so there's a little bit of relief and, you know, when Clinton finds out and he's all pissed, you know, and, and, you know, scared, um, you, I felt anyway, like a certain like relief for Monica and like, she didn't do anything wrong. She just told the truth, you know? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, so I, 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 at least in this show's version of things that does feel a bit liberating. Yeah, you're kind of proud of her for not trying to call Betty anymore, not trying to protect Bill, for finally just kind of getting herself out of the legal drama. Yeah, these people, uh, you know, the, she, the people she's protecting don't get any, you know, they don't care about her. So no. she might as well protect herself. And, you know, whether or not those threats of, you know, prison time or whatever were ever really going to be made good on, they were scary. And all yep. she had to do was tell the truth. And uh, that's what she did. And in all of that, you know, she hadn't done anything wrong. So. Yeah, I like I know that we've got the star report coming, as we said, and kind of her public humiliation is not close to over at all. But I do hope that maybe the next time we see her, she's putting her life back together in some way, Uh, because, you know, that process really started even while she was still in this national spotlight. And I, you know, I've been rooting for her throughout and now I want her to start the healing process. And hopefully we get to see that in the next episode. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that, you know, the last two episodes do give us some sense of, of the life beyond all this. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get into the Hillary and Bill portion of the show, I want to ask you, a, this is going to feel like a weird question. Did you ever read Curtis Sittenfeld's book, Rodham, that came out a couple of years ago? I did not read Rodham. I've read American Wife, which is another imagination imagining of a first lady, um, but I have not read Rodham. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, I think everyone can decide whether or not they wanted to spend a, a book reading about a, a fictionalized version of Hillary Clinton. But I thought of it in this episode in particular because um, so this episode opens with uh, Bill Clinton on the campaign trail in 1992. He's in New Hampshire. He's uh, his numbers are kind of flagging because Jennifer Flowers has come out with her accusations that she had an affair with him for a long time. They show footage of the real Jennifer Flowers. And um, the team decides that he and Hillary should do an interview on 60 Minutes. It's going to air after the Super Bowl. And this is a huge, big deal interview. Like you you have seen clips of this, even if you don't remember it from the time. Um, it's where she says, you know, I'm not Tammy Wynette standing by my man. Um, and I thought of Rodham because in, in Rodham, which is a, basically a book that imagines what if Hillary and Bill had broken up when they met at Yale and kind of gone on to live their separate lives. And in that book, that situation still happens. He still goes on 60 Minutes with the woman who is his wife in this version of the story. And in that story, the wife kind of crumples and she cries and you can, you know, she doesn't put on the strong face. That was the point. And it really gives this strong implication that Hillary is the one who saved Bill Clinton's campaign and made him president. You know, in, in Curtis Sittenfeld's book, he doesn't win the election because of that moment, basically. Um, and it made me think about the power of this moment in Hillary's life and how she effectively threw herself on a grenade for him because her she wasn't that popular afterward, but he was. Um, what did you think about how this kind of cold open set up the version of Hillary that this show is giving us? Well, I think it was crucial to remind audiences or maybe tell them for the first time that like this pattern had been happening for a long time. The Lewinsky thing was not the first of this by any means. And um pattern of Bill's behavior. Yeah, and and of Hillary, you know, sort of stepping in to clean up the mess to to reassure mm-hmm. a sort of imagined public that like no, we're, you know, this marriage may have its private problems, but like 
we are a unit, we are together, I stand by him, as should you, you know? While yeah. she was careful to clarify, like, not in that Tammy Wynette way, you know, um, yeah. which was a big misstep akin to, you know, basket of deplorables or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you can't, you know, you're, she's misreading certain sections of the, you know, electorate or whatever. But, um, but yeah, that, that context um, that really later in the episode helps explain her her just fury at him for lying to her her weariness with this whole thing um and then ultimately you know i guess the beginnings of the decision to 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 do it again to stick by him again yeah yeah i mean so then the next time we see her in the episode she's on um she's on the today show with matt lauer i have to say the guy who plays matt lauer doesn't really look much like matt lauer i didn't (laughs) maybe i'm just misremembering what he looked like in 19 uh no, not sorry. This is nineteen ninety eight by now. Um, I don't know. I wasn't crazy about that Matt Lauer casting, but also who cares? Maybe he doesn't deserve the, the yeah, honor of- <laughs> just some suit, you know, some haircut, you know. Yeah, um, but so she shows up and she uh, gives out another one of her famous lines, which is this vast right wing conspiracy that has been assaulting my husband since the day he announced he was running for president. And that line has been famous for a long time, and it sounded paranoid at the time. But I, you know, I I think history has proved her right in some way even though she's defending bill for an affair that he actually was having eight episodes of the show have shown us how many people were orchestrating this whole thing like you kind of get that she's right right well exactly she's right in the macro sense you know uh Mm -hmm. and 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 i mean macro in terms of like this wasn't going to end with clinton it continued with obama it's happening with biden this Mm -hmm. absolute Mm -hmm. like wall of of uh working you know clandestinely but also now very much out in the open of just like opposition if not and nothing else you know like the mitch mcconnell strategy just block everything you know and 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 unseat and just do whatever we can and so you know she was right about that and and sort of prescient about that but the way that that line the vast right-wing conspiracy line is often thrown back at her and was you know during the two, oh, 2008 campaign the 2016 campaign is it makes her look like this delusional person because like her husband was doing these things that wasn't a conspiracy but i think that what she was actually getting at maybe she wasn't going to say that on the today show was not that like this cons- this vast right-wing conspiracy is making up lies about this guy but they're trying to take him down for sexual indiscretions that were at least in the case of Lewinsky, consensual um and that that feels like ulterior motives writ large you know um mm-hmm. and and so yes she's ha- she's somewhat vindicated by it by history somewhat not you know whether or not we feel that clinton should have gone down for any number of things uh relating to how he treated women um in this particular instance hillary was right that this was not about defending monica Lewinsky's honor nor the honor of the oval office even it was just about getting this guy out of office who they viewed at the time as being far too progressive uh for where they wanted america to go yeah um okay so the episode goes on we get that four-month time jump monica gets her hair cut but uh over in the white house they're dealing with a bombing at u.s embassies in kenya and tanzania and i'm not sure how good your 1998 history was but were you expecting osama bin laden to be mentioned in this episode because it took me by surprise to remember that those things happened together yeah, I mean, I knew that that was when he kind of came on the radar, and then there was the bombing at the World Trade Center shortly or around that time as well. Um, but I think it's because I've seen that movie, The Siege, with Denzel Washington and Annette Bening, 
so many wow. times, the Ed's Wick movie, wow. which it, I don't think they reference uh, Bin Laden by name, but uh, maybe they do. But like that sort of like, you know, terrorism coming from the Mideast, like that fear, that sort of political uh, entity and, and, and sort of was was prevalent long before, obviously, 9-11. So this was kind of an interesting yeah. reminder of that, that like, you know, talk about like alternate histories, like there was a version of this maybe where that airstrike on that ch- training camp did kill Bin Laden, you know, yeah. and, yeah. It, you know, and so I just, yeah, it's sort of an interesting reminder that like, there was a lot of history happening outside of this, that this is significant enough to do a show on, but like, it was, it was ultimately kind of, you know, sort of light scandal compared to real you know geopolitical things happening yeah and like i think it gives some credence to his frustration when he's you know taken away from these meetings to go give a blood sample for the dna test based on the blue dress you know that it it was a distraction in that way i do go back and forth a little bit about how i feel about this show tackling this stuff i think it is relevant to you know if you're going to do a bill episode this is what was happening to him in that period but I think the light scandal and and its significance is more familiar territory for the show than kind of getting into the geopolitical aspect of it. I, I miss a little bit of the like Linda and Monica refracting women of the 90s and getting into Oval Office intrigue instead. Yeah. Am, I, don't, I, am I, I reading too much into it? No, I mean, I don't think this show really should ever do much with foreign policy unless they do a complete sort of <laughs> overhaul of how they treat these subjects. Um, I think they do treat these subjects sensitively, but it, it, it exists better on a on a more granular character based scale, I guess. Um, even the People versus OJ was that, I think, to some extent, while also making commentary on, you know, police and race and all that stuff. Um, it, it does make me think that, like, or, or I feel relieved in a way that they didn't end up going forward with with that Katrina season that they were going to do. Yeah, yeah, I thought about that a lot, honestly. Um. So, okay, so we get Bill, we get the star team rehearsing for his deposition, and then we get the actual deposition. Between those two scenes, he comes clean to Hillary, but I want to save that for later and kind of get all the star team stuff done. Um, We get the return of of young Brett Kavanaugh, um, who uh, he uses the phrase uh, masturbated into a trash can. And again, I'm just so sorry. My inner prudish nature hates that I'm saying these words, but I just felt like I needed to note that they have future Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh saying that on this show. And they're um, definitely, <laughs> I don't know, maybe a little bit in the characterization doing a little bit of hindsight editorializing, you know? Oh, a little bit, you I know. I mean, I have, I have no knowledge of what he was like when he was that age working, you know, in Washington. But, like, there's a certain, like, well, that would add up if that were... If well, that, you yeah, know. We've, we've certainly heard plenty of stories about him when he was younger than that, and now we see him today. Um, and and then we get uh, Clinton kind of in his rehearsal. He finally comes clean to his lawyers about what happened, which, you know, thank God, guy. Um, and he he kind of proudly brings up the legal loophole that he figured out from what the Paula Jones lawyers showed him. And we, we see a lot more about that uh, as he's sitting down with the star team later on. Um, do you do you feel like you can sum up basically what he figured out as the loophole to to say this was not sexual relations? Well, it's just about what is is Katie. <laughs> no, no. It, it, it basically in the Paula Jones thing, they had given a sort of narrow, kind of bizarrely narrow parameter for what um, I guess it's a sexual relations, sexual relations. Yeah. What that term defined, and it was like, well, it, it's it's about arousal, intent to arouse, or something like that. 
and yeah. intercourse. And he's like, no, as I understood that particular definition that was given to me, that was presented mm-hmm. to me, that did not happen. And so, you know, it's a it's a kind of like gambit chess movie kind of thing where he does have to sacrifice something. He does have to admit to some stuff happening. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. in so doing, it's like, but that fell out of this definition. So I did not perjure myself. I I, I was just, you know, reacting in, in, in lawyer, in a very shrewd lawyer way. I was reacting as narrowly as I needed to, you know, and answering yeah. the question as narrowly as I needed to. Yeah. And, and you see him really uh, bring that out when he does the deposition. Our old friend Jackie Bennett is sitting there doing the questioning and he's just... um kind of running circles around these guys. And you've got um, Kavanaugh and uh, the Colin Higgs character, Mike Emick, uh, they're in the actual courtroom with the jury and he's in a room by video link. I don't know why it was so convoluted, but that's, I'm sure sure that's what happened. Um, but they're kind of this Greek chorus being like, oh my God, he's just going to like, all our questions are useless. And it's it's kind of satisfying, even if you are kind of frustrated by him at the same time. I felt really fully on both sides of the, of the coin on this scene. I mean, that's the interesting thing about this characterization of Clinton and, and really any, it's like, you know, you, you do root for him because the other side are kind of slime balls, you know, whether mm-hmm. as depicted on the show or in Kavanaugh's case, actual, you know, like actually <laughs> not good people. Um, so you kind of want the person in opposition to them to triumph. Um, but at the same time, Clinton has, arguably allegedly gotten away with some things that he shouldn't have um maybe not pertaining yeah. to Lewinsky specifically but so it, it's it's tricky you're, you're it's sort of a tricky moral sort of thing i guess my question about this or at least as you see it on the show katie is you know because we see him give the jones deposition right uh, or mm-hmm. the, te- the testimony whatever it is um he wasn't thinking in those narrow terms then right like he was just lying and I then kind so. of backtracked, yes. right? Yes, that's because at that point he didn't know. Like that's the whole thing with Monica trying to warn him when she's being held by the FBI in that mall. Like he doesn't know when he gives that deposition that they have her or that they have the tapes or anything like that. So, yeah, it's it seems like a very uh, deft backtrack to to get to that definition, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's like it, you know, it's a you know they they what do they call him one of the best the best legal mind in this the country or whatever <laughs> and you think about that i mean lawyers obviously do incredible important work the nation and world over um but like to be one of the best legal minds like you kind of have to think sometimes in those kind of shrewd loophole mm-hmm. kind of terms you know and 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 what makes them so good or at least some lawyers so good or or you know highly paid or whatever is that willingness to not bend the law, but like bend one's one's body or one's case to maneuver through it, you know? And uh, and we see that on display here, which like is that is an ability that also probably well suits a politician. Yeah, yeah, you can see how those how so many lawyers become politicians, right? Um, one other thing from this deposition that I noted that I think we'll probably see more of when the Star Report uh, becomes part of the story, I imagine, in the next episode. But the more that they harp on asking him about specific sex acts and he's just like, I defer you to my statement. I said at the beginning, it makes them look gross and it makes him look high minded, which is incredible because he is the one who <laughs> allegedly did all of this stuff. Um, and I think from what I have read about the reaction to the Star Report is that's what happened is like the more that it got into like really nitty gritty details about these sex lives and where people were like give it a break guys like no one needs to know all of this stuff um 
And I wondered if it came across that way to you, too. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we see this with moral panics a lot. But like in this case, like the problem, at least in the show's version of things, the error that they made was treating it. They they went in so gangbusters that it ended up like their side was saying sex is gross. No one should ever do sex. <laughs> you know, and yeah. then you you have these scenes where like these moments where they cut to the jury watching the video feed and they're just kind of like, well, you know, like people are people, you know, and that yeah. that was the that was the mistake is that they they tried to nail him on a moral victory as well as a legal one when they should mm-hmm. have just been focused on the legal thing. Yeah, and especially because at this time and until fairly recently, Monica herself kind of insisted that it was consensual. Like there was not, there was not the framing of it as being kind of a workplace harassment thing that I think would have made it really different um, if if they had gone at it from that way. But that wasn't how it was being discussed. Yeah, and I think I did say consensual earlier uh, in this episode, and I, I I meant that in in sort of the the terms it was understood then, you know. And sure. I, I know yeah. that that uh, thinking on that has changed significantly since and recently, and I you know, and that's only fair because. There was an incredible power dynamic here that does bring up big questions about consent. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's uh, in in between these uh, the practice for the deposition and the deposition itself. Uh, Bill finally uh, comes clean to Hillary, but only after asking David Kendall, who's on his staff, to soften her up on the idea that maybe he actually had this affair, which is just the most cowardly thing. It might be more cowardly than anything we've seen Linda Tripp do. It's incredible that that's what happened. And I felt so bad for this guy trying to lay it out for Hillary. And she's so confident that he never lied to her. And it's heartbreaking to watch that happen. I mean, he softened her up by, like, putting her further into the freezer. I mean, it didn't work (laughs) at all, you know. And it was a complete disaster. And I think that watching Clinton ask him to do that, that is not any strategy. That is not any sort of like 3D chess. That is just a scared guy, you know, mm-hmm. who's like, I really don't want to deal with this, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 pathetic. And um, and I'm I'm glad that like he does get the 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 blowback from her that he deserves when he does finally come clean. Yeah. So you know, he we've seen before him entering the bedroom and she's asleep and um. He kind of like lingers over there and he does this again here. And, you know, from the way, you know, I found a little bit about how she's described this moment where he comes clean. And it apparently really was like he woke her up and was like, hey, I got to I got to tell you something. Um, He's like in a full suit. He seems to have been out there all been there all night waiting to do it. And she she kind of loses it and calls him a liar and screams at him and uh says he has to tell Chelsea and it, like we were saying it's kind of Edie Falco really fully stepping into the power of of this character D- did that feel like what you expected Hillary to do in that moment yeah and i think that that it's 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 layered in an interesting way because there's obviously the personal violation the betrayal the matter of Chelsea to be cons- you know considered the threat to the presidency the threat to the clinton dynasty there's also just in a more visceral you know, Hillary centered thing where she's like, I went out on the news and made a fool of myself. Like mm-hmm, I'm now the mm-hmm. liar. And uh, you know, she says later in the episode, either I stay and I'm the one who stayed or I'm the one who left the president. You know, yeah. she realizes what an impossible situation she's been put in, um, in this moment and these you know, many moments. Um, and, and to have the indignity of Clinton needing a, like a warm up guy just to do this one thing when she's been going to bat, you know, based on the lie the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of explosion uh, is is only warranted, you know. Yeah, I mean, the thing that 
I think is unanswerable and that, you know, the way Hillary Clinton has talked about this is that she was just completely devastated and shocked. Like, I think everyone who has thought about this marriage has wondered what she knew before, like how much she suspected that Jennifer Flowers was telling the truth or any of the other rumors that had been around about him before. Um, And the way this show depicts it is essentially that she really didn't know and she really did believe him. Does that feel right to you? I guess, I guess in the context of the show, you know, we don't want to read too much into what someone in real life believes versus what they tell themselves. But did did that feel like the version of Hillary that the show was giving us? Yeah. I mean, she does say she's like, I'm, she says, I'm aware of his reputation. But mm-hmm. I think what she's really saying there is like, I'm aware that he's not been faithful in the past, you know, but he tells me everything. He's honest with me. And I think that her frustration here is probably, at least in this characterization, is like several fold. One of which is like, in the in the in the Oval Office, really, like maybe she mm-hmm. kind of thought because the president is so scrutinized that that would, in some ways, prevent him from doing this stuff, and that he found I mean, a way. I would, yeah, right. Like like you have no time to yourself. When are you going to do that? You know, yeah. um, and that didn't pan out, obviously. And then I think it's the other thing of like. After all of this, all of these other women who've come forward, all of this stuff that I have kind of, you know, stood by you, run interference for, whatever, like, it's like some 23-year-old kid who was like an intern here, like, really? You know, Mm -hmm. I think that adds to the sort of sense of violation that, like, that, that, you know, he's like, I'm a weak man. And she's like, well, don't, you know, uh, uh, don't tell me that sob story again. But, like, I I think she's seeing his weakness and and the fact that he is going to continue to be a liability. And has to kind of muster up her own strength and momentum. I mean, she has it already, but but really, I think this is kind of the beginning of Clinton, Rodham Clinton, being like, "Well, okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna forge on my on my own." You know, obviously still yeah. in this partnership, but like, I can't trust this buffoon to not mess things up again. You know, because if he's yeah. wi- if he's willing to, to 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 risk all of this for a blowjob. You know, mm-hmm. like what what what, mm-hmm. what good is I mean, there's no saving him. Yeah. I mean, and if there's anything that I think the real Hillary Clinton and this show's version have both given us is that she's careful and deliberate and she's not going she's risk averse in a way that it seems very clear that he is not. Um, and this is something Brad Simpson brings up in the interview you'll hear in a little bit, is that after this, her popularity soared. Um, as you know, when she was kind of the wronged woman holding her head high. Um, and you can see in that scene kind of her being like, all right, this is my moment. I'm going to step into it. And, she, you know, she runs for Senate in New York what, four years after this. Like it's it all starts then, basically. Yeah. Not even, I don't think. Yeah. Um. So then so after this, he gives a speech, uh, a primetime address, basically coming clean to the American people. Uh, and he you know, he does a little bit of what we were talking about before. Like this is nobody's business saying even presidents have private lives and you see uh, both Monica and Hillary watching the speech and kind of varying uh, levels of rage, which seems very warranted. Um, And then the back half of the episode, or maybe not even half, but in in my memory, it looms very large is them going on a truly terrible vacation to Martha's Vineyard. Um, And it it very perfectly recreates the famous shot of um, them walking to the helicopter with Chelsea in between them. Mm -hmm. And man, what good casting on Chelsea. Like that girl looks exactly like I remember her. Yeah, Yeah, it's uncanny. (laughs) The full pyramid hair and everything. It's uh, it's it's really good wig. I'm assuming that's a wig. Um, And I don't even know if Chelsea speaks, but she gives Bill a really good big eye roll uh, when they get to the house, which is I think I think he deserved that. Right. Oh, yeah. And then some. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but you also think, I mean, this girl is like, 
in college, like people are paying attention to this. I mean, that's mortifying for her. It's scary. It's just like, you know, and and she is someone who, you know, not collateral damage. She's done fine for herself, but like not certainly was not in, in the thought process at all when Bill Clinton was doing any of this stuff, you know, it's like, well, maybe you should have stopped to be like, what would this, how would this impact my daughter? Yeah, no, you feel bad enough for the uh, children of famous people and presidents, especially um, without them having to go through a, a really, um, you know, unnecessary scandal created by their parent. So the way that Hillary has talked about this, you know, two weeks they spent at Martha's Vineyard is that I could barely speak to Bill. And when I did, it was a tirade. I read. I walked on the beach. He slept downstairs. I slept upstairs. Uh, and that buddy, the dog was there and he was the only person in the family who spent time with Bill, which is funny she's funny um so you see that you see her you know basically saying like you go sleep in the guest house i'm done uh but then they go to a really uh, terrible birthday dinner at vernon jordan's house he's back blair underwood as vernon jordan um first of all they're drinking red wine in august and you have spent summers in new england so is this a thing that you do because that that's like anathema to me who does that katie this is not done this is this would be like wearing white <laughs> shoes after Labor Day. I mean, come on. I know. Like, come on, guys. This I mean, would they're be in this a like crisp white wine, a rosé. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was kind of not not yeah, in not the there equation yet. yet. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe there was just this. Maybe they just all have a, a penchant for red wine, <laughs> in which case, okay. But that r- clanged to me as did um, the decidedly not 1998 kitchen that they have in in the, yeah, the Clinton they house. Have- yeah. They have some white subway tile that I was like, mm. and a pot filler over the stove. They didn't have those. Ooh, God, yeah. Well, this is where your HGTV knowledge really comes into play. I appreciate your expertise there. Um, I, you know, I both loved and hated this Vernon Jordan dinner scene because it's so painful to watch. Um, but the the part where they're sitting at the table and and seeing Bill and Clive Owen's version of Bill kind of trying to get his way out of the doghouse and just failing, um. And he says, uh, she says, fun is not a priority for Chelsea. And he says she gets that from her mother and just like everyone basically drops their forks on their plates. Um, it's kind of delicious. Like, I, I liked the the dynamic there as painful as it was to imagine myself in. For anyone, no matter how, you know, known they are, they ha- there are moments when they're just in a house and there are people, you know, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's interesting watching what some version of what that might have been, you know. Um, them falling into these usual social codes where she, you know, Hillary's like, I keep my commitments, you know, we're going to this dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the husbands pair off so Bill can, you know, whine about Hillary. And then Vernon Jordan's wife is just like, what, what, you know, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And, and Hillary's like, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm fine. And then it's like, oh, tell me about this painting. And of course, it's a, a ship at a stormy sea, you know, very, <laughs> very pointedly. Um, but, but also, like, you can imagine that being the painting that they would have in their Rose's Vineyard house. Oh, fully, fully. And like, <laughs> you know, th- but th- I think that the interesting thing about these sort of domestic scenes, especially when they're like someone's guest is like, that is a lot of politics, you know, at least yes. during campaigns, fundraising in rich people's homes. And it's not always just a big party it's sometimes more intimate and like you know you have to be a sociable person at least you know off camera and behind closed doors um to ingratiate yourself to people and i i do believe that these people are the jordans are their friends you know yeah Um, but all of a sudden they are they can't shake the political thing off of them when they enter when they walk through the door you know because it's so stuck to them at the moment and i think that discomfort and trying to negotiate that on the jordan's part on the clinton's part um, is really interesting to watch. 
But I also imagine, you know, uh, Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan were close friends for a very, very long time. But I don't know how close Hillary was to his wife. So, you know, you imagine when, like, you're hanging out with another couple and, like, one person is close, the other one isn't. You're just trying to make conversation with the other one. You're like, okay, we're not opening up here. You're not getting insight into my deepest trauma right now. Right, right. You know, because, like, you 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 know, Vernon is Bill's friend, you know, and, and yeah. that sense of, like, may, maybe there is some faint psychological thing happening here where Hillary's like, I don't even trust this situation, you know, like, yeah, like, the, yeah. uh, uh, like realizing how many of the people she rubs elbows with, you know, even in the most intimate and sort of, you know, socially intimate ways, like, um, it, she's like, but these are Bill's people, you know, like, I'm yeah. not, yeah. And, and she, you know, at this point, I think they have pretty well earned, I don't want to say paranoia, but like so many of the people from their inner circle back in Arkansas have been prosecuted by Ken Starr or have written books or, you know, become, you know, conservative commentators. Like there's so little to trust. And, you know, I, for all we know that the relationship with the Jordans was still very trustworthy. But yes, that, that like there's no reason to open up to people that you have to maintain a facade that seems very believable for, for Hillary. So my question for you is when in the scene where Bill asked Vernon, like, could you talk to her for me? You know, cause again, he cannot, <laughs> he cannot do it on his own. And Vernon's like, I don't, I really don't think I'd be the right person for that. <laughs> what do you, what do you do is, do you think they're referencing something specific or is it just maybe there's a general oh. sort of like, maybe does, maybe is the thinking that Hillary knows about the Revlon thing. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think I mostly thought of it as being like, I'm not doing your dirty work for you. Like you were the right person to do this that I'm not. But I mean, let's see, was the Revlon thing have been? Yeah, it was. The Revlon thing was public by then because that was part of those initial early reports about Monica. So, yeah, that very well could be it. I apologize to the listener if you're hearing chickens. Um, I'm staying <laughs> at a house in Ojai, California, and there are chickens in on the property and they're we're going nuts right now. So absolutely leaving that in the show. Um, okay, so we'll get to the, the big final scenes of the episode where uh, Hillary finally lets Bill have it. Uh, she throws a vase at his head, which feels like really the least that he deserves, um, and goes on a tirade, which is what you know Hillary herself sh- said was what was happening. And he, uh, you referenced this earlier, that he kind of starts talking about how his weakness goes back a long way. And she's like, I don't want to hear your sob story again. And you imagine all the time she spent him watching his stump speech about his rough childhood and... Uh, I mean, I'm really rooting for her in this scene, and I love the way Edie Falco plays it. It's just like complete, eloquent rage in this whole sequence. Isn't it fun to watch Edie Falco do another version of the Whitecaps episode from The Sopranos? (laughs) (laughs) Another great tear the house down domestic fight, you know, about infidelity and stuff. Um, I mean, they deserve it, right? Yeah. I mean, when you got to have a scene like that, you bring in Edie Falco. Now it all makes sense, you know. (laughs) But it's really cathartic because, like, again, like... You, you see, or you can imagine at least, like, this version of Hillary Rodham Clinton being like, okay, like, this, I, I, we have crossed a Rubicon here, you know, I gotta, I gotta do this on my own, I'm sick of this, you know, I'm sick of your sob stories, I'm sick of the way you, you know, you stop trying to work me like you work, you know, a room full of donors or whatever, like, um, there, there seems to be a sort of, certainly not a breaking point, because they're still together to this day, but, like, um, a major shift in in how the relationship is perceived. I mean, she even calls it what like an arrangement or something. Yeah, she does, which is exactly the word that he. I think in that sixty minutes interview from nineteen ninety two, he says this isn't an arrangement. He kind of throws that word back at him, which I thought was a nice touch. 
And I don't know if it's really an arrangement, you know, in, in reality or even, you know, that seems like something you say that's mean when you're in a fight with your partner and then take it back later on. Because um, I don't know how you stay together the way that they have, if that's really the case. But it does feel like the most hurtful thing she can say to him at that point. Yeah. And the truth is probably very complicated. And it's, you know, can you sep- separate the love from the political ambition? And, you know, I don't know, maybe that's part of the love, you know. You know, and I think it's interesting that Bill says you're the only one woman I've ever loved. And which sounds mm, like a mm-hmm. cheap kind of line, like they, none, none, the other ones didn't mean anything. I mean, I believe that to him they didn't. But yeah. it's like, well, what does that love mean to you, Bill? You know, mm-hmm. like, does that mean you're the only woman who I can rely on to, like, fix my messes? You're the only woman who I've let into this kind of inner sanctum of secrets and whatever. Like, it, 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 that feels like a very loaded and one-sided kind of way to express love. Like, you know... You have mm. you have to stick with me because you're the only one I've ever felt this way about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more thing on the fight that I wanted to point out. We you said earlier that she mentions Linda uh in this conversation. Linda's still there and she calls her a psychopathic looney tune. Uh and in these um these notes from her former friend Diane Blair that were published a couple of years ago, she called Hillary the real Hillary called Monica a narcissistic looney tune. Um so I thought that was a nice echo of the real Hillary's language, because you can certainly imagine her calling Linda the same thing. Yeah. Imagine a lot of us calling Linda that. And with regards to Lewinsky, like uh, Hillary in the, in these scenes is still clinging to the idea that Monica was kind of crazy stalker fan, you know, whatever, mm, because mm-hmm. that was part of the original narrative that Bill had told her. And it's like, yeah, no, but that's not quite true. I mean, yes, there were a lot of phone calls to Betty and there are a lot of drop-ins at the white house so there was an element of not stalkerness certainly but like maybe over eagerness on on Lewinsky's part. yeah intensity but like it's interesting that while hillary is kind of having the veil lifted from her eyes in terms of her husband's lying she's still kind of embedded in that the, the thinking she was fed about who monica is mm-hmm. that's a really good point um okay so the the next morning um or actually I guess that night uh he kind of goes out to recover by the pool and this uh guy comes out to tell him that the al-Qaeda bombing is complete and the next morning he learns that he didn't get bin Laden of course we know that from history um he doesn't say goodbye to Hillary she's sitting in that beautiful uh very current kitchen um and she goes down to the beach and what starts playing but stand by your man by Tammy Wynette uh it's it's on the nose, but I didn't really mind it. Maybe also because Edie Falco is playing the scene so well. Um, and it leaves you in this real uh, sense of limbo for Hillary. Like you, I mean, we know what she's going to do next, but in the episode, you don't really know. Um, and I, I love having her own that moment and kind of seeing her at this um, this crossroads as she stares into the ocean like a true Nancy Myers heroine. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they say the Secret Service says you can't go for a walk. There's just too many reporters. It's just it's not safe. Like. So you yeah. have to stay on the property. So she's like, okay, I'm going to stay on the property. Bill leaves. She's, you know, sitting at the kitchen counter island, which, again, not period <laughs> appropriate. There were islands then, but not quite in that same way. <laughs> anyway, um, and, uh, you know, she's kind of doing sort of domestic vacation stuff, you know, and going for a walk down to the water. And it's like she's still trapped in that house, but in that moment feels much more like human Hillary deciding what to do about her husband and not like politician Hillary deciding what to do about Bill Clinton, you know? And, and um, I think that like understanding the levels of how someone in that situation would have to process that, you know, in the, in the macro all the way to the micro. Like, I I think that it's an, it's a, it's a good sort of 
nicely ambiguous but telling way to end uh, an episode when, like you said, we we already know what's going to happen, but um, to that little glimpse of psychology is, I don't know, akin to the upcoming film Spencer or Jackie or, you know, something like that. Mm. <laughs> God, a, a, a Spencer Jackie movie about Hillary Clinton on that beach. I, I would watch it. Pablo Lorraine I mean, just I, like sat up in bed somewhere. <laughs> Please listen to me, Pablo. Um, I did think throughout this episode, you know, I think Hillary Clinton, the real Hillary Clinton is like one of the most complex public figures that we have as Americans. And I think a lot of us will be working out our feelings about her good and bad forever. Um, and this episode feels like it's a tiny, tiny bit of grappling with that. And Part of me thinks that, like, we can't really deal fully with Hillary until we're a lot further away from 2016. And this episode can't do everything. Did you feel like it accomplished something, though, in kind of reckoning with this enormous legacy that she really has over American politics? Uh, yeah, I think it humanized the moment, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and that's all they could really do. I, I This show was never going to be able to take a zoomed out like here's a broad assessment of hillary clinton person and public figure you know like that's you know sure. you'd have there's too much to encompass there but like in a sort of more real time like here's how she may have or did react according to her book or whatever like in this particular moment like yeah, i think it does a good job and i think it um it offers us a thorough enough kind of mapping of her psychology and all its variation um that it doesn't feel like they're trying to you know lean too hard for us to support her or, or not or anything. It it feels balanced. Would you watch a 10 episode series about Hillary? I mean, maybe eventually it's the same reason I didn't read Sittenfeld's book, even though I like her writing in general is like, it was just, you know, too soon. I was like, I, I just can't dwell in this mm. headspace, you know, uh, maybe, maybe down the road, uh, there will be a time for, for reassessment when, when we have a bit of a, you know, safe distance. Well, they did announce a uh, TV adaptation of Rodham, uh, the sentence build book last year. So I don't know where that stands, but um, I would watch that. And I would, I really would recommend anyone who is kind of, you know, watches this episode and thinks, God, I like want to think more about how Hillary's head works. I would recommend that book. It's maybe a little bit of an easier read um, because it doesn't end in the 2016 election as we know it. And uh, it doesn't bring up all those feelings. Um, and I do talk to, uh, Brad Simpson about Rodden because it turns out he's friends with Curtis Sittenfeld, which I had no idea when I brought it up in our interview. Um, so let's hear my conversation with Brad Simpson. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I did want to start by talking about the fact that you grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, because we've been asking everyone on the show what their connection was to the story. And I just have to assume, as an, as a child of Arkansas, that uh, Bill Clinton's entire presidency loomed very large for you when all this was happening. Yeah, it was a, a massive thing, in, not in my childhood, but when I was in college, he was elected president. And mm-hmm. I grew up in downtown Little Rock, not far from the governor's mansion. And a lot of my parents' friends were... FOBs is what they were called mm. at the time, which was Friends <laughs> of Bill. And um, that area in downtown Little Rock is a sort of, you know, more sophisticated uh, uh, part of Little Rock. It has, it had the nice restaurants. It had the more liberal families growing up, restoring houses. And a lot of my parents' friends ended up making the move to Washington when he was elected. And some of them actually came back pretty quickly, too. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the complicated part of this, you know, the, the Clinton scandals basically becomes whitewater. And I think the show deals with that as as much as you need to to understand how Monica Lewinsky gets involved, but doesn't get too involved. But, you know, that was all people from Arkansas. Like, what, do you understand whitewater on a level that the, <laughs> the rest of us maybe never will? I, I do understand whitewater in a way that other people um, probably don't. We actually were going to have a joke on the show at one point and have the independent counsel's office try to explain whitewater to each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we get boiled down to it was a failed land deal where the Clintons lost money, but there might have been some insider shenanigans. Um, but Whitewater in Arkansas sort of became legendary because I think a lot of people at the time in Arkansas saw Ken Starr as being on a fishing expedition. Mm-hmm. And what started as a Whitewater expedition became an investigation into various other possible scandals amongst Arkansas politicians. And nobody was really uh, taken down because of Whitewater, except for, I think, Jim McDougal. And mm-hmm. that was more connected to his savings and loan. And, you know, people in Arkansas at the time did not like Ken Starr. Arkansas has become a much more conservative state. Um, you know, I think it went like 80 or 90 percent or some insane amount for Trump. But mm-hmm. at the time, Ken Starr was looked at as a person coming in from D.C. and unfairly targeting um, upstanding citizens. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Jim McDougal, Susan McDougal was like my real re- revelation from watching this show because it's you know kind of mentioned offhand that she was in solitary confinement because of Ken Starr, and I couldn't believe that that was a real story. But that's just one of the many things that this show resurfaces, and then you go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, and it's uh, it's so rich in terms of things to learn about. No, and we had to make a decision in this show. We made it by deciding we we're going to tell it through the eyes of the women and sort of encountering the scandal as it connected with them, but also. There's a version of the show where you start with Whitewater and the investigation, and there was some real funniness in terms of how Ken Starr got appointed. You know, there was another independent counsel before him, and he was kicked off by a panel of judges who may or may not have had lunch with a conservative senator right before it happened. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about it that might be true conspiracy theories. We decided we didn't want to fall down the rabbit hole of Whitewater. And the important thing to know for the show was that Ken Starr was at the end of a long investigation that was yielding limited results in terms of what they wanted, which was to get the president indicted or Hillary Clinton indicted. Um, And we just made a decision early on that we were going to give the 
bare minimum of facts, because what's important to our show is the ways in which Ken Starr then became connected to Linda Tripp. Yeah. So you talk about how you wanted to use the lens of the women in the story. And for six episodes, more or less, we've had Edie Falco as Hillary Clinton kind of in the background of the show. Episode seven, previous week, she kind of emerges for the first time. But this feels like it's really the Hillary episode. You've been kind of lying in wait to unleash Edie Falco's performance on us. Why was why was that the structure of the season? Why did it make sense to wait this long? You know, we had a philosophy for the season, which is we're going to meet each character at the point of crisis, and we're going to meet each character at the moment at which the case really starts for them. So for Linda, it starts when her boss commits suicide and she gets kicked out of the White House. For Monica, we decided not even to start with the affair, but the moment of her being exiled to the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. For Paula Jones, we started with her seeing her name in the American Spectator magazine. And we meet Ken Starr when Linda Tripp's name is going to suddenly come before him. And we really decided with Hillary, we wanted to tell her story as it related to Bill's scandal. And we really wanted to meet her the same. We were meeting other characters as the scandal intersected with them. And there have been some complaints online that I've seen that we have this great actress and we're not using her. Um, I hope that when people see this episode, they can see why we needed to cast somebody who has the not just the wattage of Hillary Clinton, I'm sorry, that, that, that Edie has, but also the ability to go head to head with an actor like Clive. But mm-hmm. we didn't really want to have a whole bunch of scenes of Hillary Clinton going about her day in the White House um, and doing things that weren't germane to the thrust of our story. Mm-hmm. Um, really, we wanted to tell the story of Hillary just through this lens of the scandal. I mean... It makes me think of Julianne Nicholson on Mayor of Easttown, where she's in the early episodes and everyone's like, but Julianne Nicholson, like, she's this great actress. What's she doing? And then the the season ends, you're like, aha, I see it. It's uh, it's lying in wait for, <laughs> for the audience. I mean, it's better than Dune, which I saw yesterday, which is you <laughs> have all these teases of Zendaya. And then at the end, you're like, oh, I have to wait for the next movie. Yeah, you got to wait her. for, well, you know, impeachment season two for the <laughs> or the season four of Mayor Crime Story. Well, also, um, Hillary is... One of the most consequential political figures of the last 50 years, um, her public persona has been endlessly debated as as well as her private inner life. And this show can't tackle all of those things. It's not meant to tackle all these things. We were interested in Hillary Clinton as this scandal related to her. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to get to a point of trying to tell her story because she is so known, but also... You know, they've written about this in their memoirs, and I was looking up what she had said about when he broke the news to her, and she said she was lying in bed and he woke her up, like all the things that we saw on the show. But you know that they can't be revealing the whole thing because they are these public figures. And Edie Falco was really clear when she spoke to Richard Lawson that she was imagining a version of Hillary Clinton. Is that what you guys were doing, too, in the process of creating the story? You know, Hillary was probably one of the more perplexing and puzzling characters to write for our writers' rooms and to discuss, because... The thing about her public image is true about what is known about her, which is there's a sort of wall, a protective wall she's put up around herself. And if you can compare Hillary's autobiography and Bill's autobiography, his biography is full of him doing self-psychoanalysis of his alcoholic stepfather who beat his mother and what it meant to grow up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And Hillary's is very Midwestern, very Methodist, very reserved. Even the way that she describes a scandal, she would say things like, I was really disappointed in Bill. And you can't really get to the inner life. Her childhood 
is really glossed over in the book. And there have been all these reports that her dad was actually a very stern disciplinarian, that he was a man who was verbally abusive to his family. And she sort of presents it more as him having this sort of Midwestern grit. There were stories about if the kids uh, left the toothpaste cap off the toothpaste, he would throw it outside into the Midwestern snow and make them search for it with their bare hands for hours. And she presents Mm -hmm. it as a sort of like fact about her father and would say, wow, there's something, there's something deeper there. But there were a couple places that we could go to. There was a lot of contemporaneous reporting. And there was also these papers that Diane Blair, who was our good friend, had left Mm -hmm. to the University of Arkansas. And Diane Blair was a confidant of Hillary Clinton. And she kept a journal about her. And when she died, her papers were given to the university and they were released. And she actually is the place where most of what we know about how Hillary felt about the scandal and the affair comes from. Yeah, I noticed that. I think in this episode, she calls Linda Tripp a psychopathic Looney Tune. And then she actually called Monica a narcissistic Looney Tune in those Linda, in those in those papers. And I was really fascinated by that swap because you can believe her saying both things, but only one of them's in this episode. Well, she calls. Uh, uh, yes, she does. I think she does say narcissistic Looney Tune about Monica and then something else about about Linda that's along those lines. Um, but by the time Diane Blair had written down those lines, it was all about Hillary sort of accepting, not, not accepting, that's not the right word, but coming to terms with what had happened and really getting insight into how she personally came to terms with what Bill said was the reason why he had this affair. Mm-hmm. I was so struck. And then this is, you know, it, what she has said the whole time is that she didn't know about Jennifer Flowers. She didn't, you know, she believed him when he had told her all this stuff. He believed him when he told her that nothing happened with Monica and then the the really deep hurt that she feels in that, like how genuine that is. Did you guys ever talk about going a different way with that, with maybe suggesting that she knew more than she did, or was it really just kind of taking her at her word that she was stunned? We had to make a decision um, for the show about what Hillary knew or let herself know. And it seems pretty clear that she believed him, especially initially about Monica, that he convinced her that this was a young woman who had made this all up. And I think this was wrapped up in the fact that Ken Starr was the vessel that this was coming through because she had Mm -hmm. so much anger and hatred towards Ken Starr. And they believed that they had twisted Jim McDougal against them. They believed he'd unfairly gotten friends to testify against them, that he had gotten people to lie. And so I think it was a lie that whether she chose to believe it or just believed it outright, that she did believe. You know, Hillary says something in in one of these episodes, which is uh, Bill has always been truthful to her. Mm-hmm. And she talked to advisors about the pain in their marriage. And there's this period in the 1980s where it seemed like they were going to break up and they didn't. It was right after they had their their child. And the writers sort of came to believe you know, and I can't say they all collectively believe this, but the room opinion finally was that Hillary believed that Hillary had all, that Bill had always confessed to his affairs. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Bill, as part of his depositions with Ken Starr, had to eventually admit to having an affair with Jennifer Flowers. And apparently Hillary was really upset because she had still believed for all this time that he hadn't had an affair with Jennifer Flowers. And, you know, Jennifer has given this press conference where she said she had this long-standing affair. And then Hillary, as we recreate famously, went on 60 Minutes to um, to talk about the pain in their marriage. 
And later, when Jennifer released tapes, one of the aides overheard Hillary saying to Bill about these tapes of Bill and Jennifer on the phone, but why would you be on the phone with a woman like that? That she still believed him. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I know a lot of people think, well, she must have known or she must have known on some level. And I can't talk to you about the some level version of what people tell themselves about their spouses, yeah. but it feels even from the way she defended him in the press, she really initially believed that this was a setup by Ken Starr. Yeah. Did you ever read the Curtis Sittenfeld book, Rodham? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. Yes. In fact, um, I just, um, it's funny. We were, we were in Minneapolis this summer. My, my wife is friends with um, Curtis from college. Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, so we were with her this summer while we were filming. I'd sort of taken a break to visit my family there. And, you know, we talked to, we talked about Hillary, but yes, I, I love that book. Well, so it's the um, the 60 Minutes interview is this really pivotal point in that book, which for people who haven't read it, it kind of imagines if Hillary and Bill had broken up and she breaks, they break up when they're at Yale. So long before his um, political ambitions. But in this version of the story, he's married to someone else who basically crumbles in that 60 Minutes interview. And the fact that she falls apart is what tanks his presidential campaign and he never becomes president. And I loved thinking about that, watching your recreation of the 60 Minutes interview, because she is so... She navigates that whole situation. And but then, as you show, to her own detriment, like she, her poll numbers come back so weak after that, even though they like him more. Um, so, yeah. Why did you guys zero in on that scene as for as essential for this version of Hillary? The way that most of America in the 1990s met Hillary Clinton was through these two 60 minute interviews during the 1990 campaign. Up until that moment, Bill Clinton was like an unlikely possible candidate for president. He was a rising star, and Hillary was a political wife who was shaking hands at functions. And then suddenly, Jennifer Flowers, who was you know, famously a nightclub singer in Arkansas, gave a big press conference saying she'd had this long affair with Bill Clinton. And the decision was made that Hillary and Bill should go on 60 Minutes. It was going to be broadcast right after the Super Bowl, so it was going to be a huge audience. And basically, she was going to show that no matter what had happened, their marriage was real and mm -hmm. that she was okay, really, with what had happened. They had made peace in her marriage and tried to take it all back to the private sector, to, to, to private space. And the interview saved his candidacy. His poll numbers were plummeting and then they stabilized. But it was terrible for her because she had to walk this line between being firm and owning her decisions in the marriage while also not seeming like she was a pushover. And she had this famous line that's the title of the episode, which is, I'm not some Tammy Wynette just standing by her man. And that just alienated a lot of women and a lot of people. Yeah. It, a whole section of the country felt abused by that statement. You and I can understand exactly what she meant by that statement. But it was the first time that, it wasn't the first time in her career, but it was the first time on a national stage she had to sort of use her body to help save him. Mm -hmm. And there was a second interview they did about three months later, two months later for 60 Minutes that was really Hillary sort of defending the fact that she um, had worked while Bill Clinton was governor. It's crazy to think today, now that we're in third or fourth wave feminism, that, yeah. you know, that this was a 60 Minutes topic at the time of her having to justify being smart and having a career and, you know, being involved in the political sphere. Um, and she said something and that, which is, I guess I could have just stayed at home and baked cookies. Mm -hmm. Those two moments really solidified 
who she was for a lot of people, and they followed her throughout her career. The ironic thing, of course, is that during this scandal, during Bill's scandal and during the impeachment, her poll numbers went higher than they'd ever been before. Yeah. It was only through this public shaming that she was able to gain this popularity that tipped beyond just their base that had eluded her so far during the presidency. And yeah. we wanted to start the show with that because we wanted to show in the cold open an early moment of basically Bill's issues intersecting with her public persona. Mm-hmm. And you just see how it sets the template for the 2016 campaign. Like all like those, the cookies line and the Tammy Wynette line are just the entire rest of her career and reveal why she's such a lightning rod now. Like it, everyone still is just constantly working through their feelings about Hillary, which is, you know, it's a power she has over us. She's a, she's a complicated figure. And I think it was interesting for me because I'm generation X and the writers in our writer's room, which was a mainly female writer's room, they're all millennials. So they, met Hillary in a different way, mm-hmm. um, you know, oh, in different ways, they're critical of second wave feminism and also critical of the sort of 90s neoliberalism that Bill and Hillary really represented. Bill and Hillary, I just uh, combined their <laughs> names the way that the right wing does. Um, <laughs> and so I think, you know, there's generational complications around Hillary Clinton. There's political complications. She is one of the most significant figures and, you know, sort of Curtis's book is really trying to take that on in a Mm -hmm. way that that we're not in the show. Yeah. So there's not much Monica in this episode and we kind of see what, you know, what she's doing and there's the heartbreaking line about her staying home and knitting and looking forward to her husband and kids in the future. Um, But she does get this phone call, like anonymous phone call from someone warning her that the white house is after her and it's both of them. It's not just bill, but it's Hillary. And there's been like her power in over the course of this story has been kind of, it comes in intermittently. He's clearly afraid of, disappointing her she's clearly you know involved in spinning the reaction to this but like why did you want to include that phone call to monica and like what what is your take on what her power was throughout all of this we did the phone call because monica was receiving letters like that at the time and we're not trying to put our finger on the scale and say that uh that was really happening i think it was it was more to show the sort of paranoia and Mm -hmm that Monica felt at the time and how under attack she felt. I think what was true during this time was that the white house had decided, and we show this in episode seven to put out a portrait of Monica that people ran with. And you're going to see this in a future episode. There's actually two ways of attack on Monica Lewinsky. The first wave of attack was in the immediate aftermath of the drudge report where she was presented as a crazy stalker, as someone who was an obsessive, you know, um, and someone who had maybe made all of this up. That was the first wave. And that was something that I think the White House did put out. Um, you know, we show Bill Clinton talking to Sidney Blumenthal in episode seven and feeding mm-hmm. the narrative. And so that was carried in a lot of places. The second thing that happened to Monica was the Star Report, and that will come in a later episode. And you'll see that that's where this other doubly damning image starts to land on yeah. her, which is when all the details of the sexual activity that they engaged in became public in the best-selling government document of all time. Um, so we wanted to get a sense of how Monica was feeling and the what it felt like to feel like the White House was targeting you. Um, mm-hmm. And we've made a decision to have a little Monica in this episode because, one, we wanted to turn into an episode that was more about the Clintons' marriage but also in OJ, we had got to episode eight, and that was about the jurors. 
and mm, really took mm-hmm. a step back from our main characters and talked about people who were really just glorified extras up until that that episode. And for us, we really wanted to do a, a an episode that was about the crisis in their marriage and that crazy, terrible weekend they had in Martha's Vineyard when he finally, after having to admit to the American public and to her, that there had been an affair. And you have to remember, Bill Clinton's lie about the affair lasted for like six or seven months. I mean, that's the one thing that we're not really showing in the show is the amount of time between the initial, I did not have sex with that woman and his confession. And it actually probably saved his presidency because sort of in the immediate aftermath of the affair, he probably would have had to resign if he admitted it, but it allowed him to sort of shore up support and reframe the narrative. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess Monica's hair change really does a lot in this episode because I like as soon as she showed up with that, I was like, oh, I remember that hair. Like now I know where we are. It was really uh, evocative. Yes. And she'd gone through, I mean, this period, um, you know, I wish that that we had had, you know, maybe one more episode to show this in the show or a way to show it. This period was just really horrible for her family. You know, they were being stalked by the paparazzi. People were selling stories about her. They were writing horrible stories about her mother and her father she was enjoying a horrible spate of celebrity. She also did a Vanity Fair shoot that went wrong that her lawyer Ginsburg had advised her to do, which he shouldn't have. Um, yeah. That, you know, people took it as sort of like, oh, you're enjoying this scandal. And she was just constantly trying to reframe her narrative. I mean, one of the things we talked about was that all these women in the show were constantly trying to reclaim their narrative. Like Linda has an idea of how her story is going to go. Paul is just trying to get her good name back. Monica keeps trying to set the record straight. And they just have no ability to do that. They're, they're un, outmatched by the forces. And I think that's the sort of suggestion of like, on some level, the White House was creating an image of Monica that she was not going to be able to escape. Um, I want to ask you a really broad listener question that we got a while ago. And I think I read this on the air, but, you know, didn't have a good answer. But just asking, what is the crime? Like the franchise is called American <laughs> Crime Story. There are obviously a lot of accusations of crimes and kind of various lower level, you know, perjury and things like that. But did you guys talk about this? Like, what is the crime at the center of the story? Yeah, I mean, you know, we always feel like the crime itself on some bigger level is a crime that we as America committed um, that's less of a, you know, a specific murder or a specific whatever, but it's some something we all participated in together. So in OJ, it was the sort of, you know, the way that we demonized Marsha Clark and Chris Darden and Johnny Cochran. Um, in Versace, we're talking about sort of like, you know, gay male sexual identity in the 1990s and the Defense of Marriage Act. And and in this one, we're really talking about the ways in which we all engage in this public shaming and we all indulge in making fun of and laughing at these women. Um, but the specific crime, I mean, an impeachment is a high crime and a misdemeanor. I mean, that's the big question as we lead up to it. This is a show about the events leading up to an impeachment. And, you know, certainly the right wing thinks that Bill Clinton committed a crime. There's Vince Foster's suicide at the beginning. You know, we've got FBI agents. I, you know, to me, it's always felt like true crime. So it's, it's interesting that people are asking that question because I guess it's, you know, self-evident to me in a way that maybe it's not to everybody else. Um, but I think the real thing that we've constantly tried to go for is that we want the audience to feel indicted in what happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like to think it would be somewhat different today, but I can't tell you that it'd be totally different today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we've been asking ourselves throughout the coverage on this. And we're into such a fascinating moment. I think Monica herself has really led the charge on the moment that we're in now of like rethinking the way we've treated people in the past. And, 
you know, every time someone becomes famous now out of nowhere, I hope we all take a step back and think a little bit more before we judge them, but maybe not. I hope so. I mean, I had, for, for different reasons, Monica and um, Amber Tamlin, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big Twitter, I have a Twitter account that I just follow things on. And That's better that way. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. I, well, I promise you, because for various reasons, I got tagged in two of their posts in the last uh, couple of weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of positivity in response to their posts, but I was... I'm stunned by the 20% intense negativity that comes at people. And the fact that people have these hateful feelings and go out and just deliberately try to troll and are looking for things to be mean about. So I think there'd be more people on Monica's side. I think literally there was like one feminist, as Sarah likes to say, Sarah Burgess likes to say on Monica's side <laughs> during the time. So she would, I think she would have a bigger audience, but I think the hate would also be amplified yeah. by social media these days yeah. too. And now, like, every anyone can get that hate aimed at them for a day, the way that social media works. You know, you you get a tiny bit of the experience that she had in 1998. Um, okay, so to, to wrap things up a little bit, I mean, you mentioned hearing more about the Star Report later. Like, we've got a few episodes left. Is there anything else you want to prime people for to expect as the, the season concludes? Any advanced reading we should be doing or <laughs> anything like that? Well, I would say that... Um... Well, definitely, I would not. Don't go read the Star Report. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it is a horrible, horrible, sexist, messed up document. Um, but and that's coming. It's we're two episodes away from that. Um, I think that you know, in the next episode, which is called Grand Jury and really is about um, the grand jury experiences, you're going to see the gauntlet that Monica had to walk through, which I think is probably less known to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people have been asking, have been talking about the fact that we don't deal with the sex on the show. And I think that we deal with the sex, but not in the way that people expect. Um, and, you know, I hope people enjoyed the the viewing with Hillary and think that I think Edie is incredible in this episode. Really and I remember is. the first day on set, Sarah Burgess was like, I'm so glad we cast her because you need somebody who has that force where you believe she could be a forceful political figure of her own on her own right. And and her frustration that she's not. I, I feel like you really get that in that, that she has hitched her wagon to this guy and he is endangering it. Well, it's, it's interesting because they, they right before this happened, they were in such a good place. And this is something we, we didn't totally show on the show, but she just turned 50. You know, Chelsea had gone off to college. Her political persona had sort of moderated in part because she had become a more traditional first lady. She'd stopped taking on, she'd dedicated herself to more child, you know, child health and safety issues. And they were they were in a good space. Like right before this happened, there was famous uh, photographs of them taking sort of like dancing in their swimsuits. I think in like the Virgin Islands. So, um, and she just had no idea that her husband had laid this ticking time bomb that was going to explode. And um, I think Edie's great at accessing at accessing that anger. At um, at one point, she says about uh, Bill Clinton, "You're just chaos. You just cause Mm -hmm. chaos," which I think is is true. Yeah, yeah. You like she you know, the final shot of the episode, she's standing on the beach and she's sad and she's it's cathartic, but also you just feel that rage. <laughs> like the most most angry beach visit maybe captured on television in a while. Well, she says something that the effect of um and you know, Flora Birnbaum, who wrote episode four, which was the telephone game, wrote this episode, and she says something to the effect of, you know, if I stay, I'm the woman who stayed, and if I'm leave, I'm the woman who left. And to have this personal plane play out in such a um, public way is something that you can't imagine. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, and this is something the writers struggle with, you know, Hillary was in Arkansas. She 
was involved in going after what Betty Wright, his chief of staff, called uh, bimbo eruptions, which mm. were um, the women who would say they had affairs with Bill Clinton. And she was, there's different accounts. There's accounts where she is deeply involved or less involved, but she certainly participated in hiring private detectives to go after these women. And George Stephanopoulos in his book, All Too Human, about being on the campaign trail with him in 92, when Sweet Sweet Connie, who was a famous groupie, says she has an affair with Bill Clinton, she says to George, the first thing we have to do is destroy her credibility. So, you know, she's an incredibly complicated figure, but what we, the way we want to approach her is the way we want to approach everybody, especially the women in the show, which is through empathy and to talk about what it was probably like to walk in their shoes yep. during this time. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Um, we'll be back next week as we really round the corner on the the end of impeachment. Um, and in the meantime, you're hearing Richard and Sonia talking about succession at the same time. Um, uh, and as you might have seen me tweet about, uh, we now are set up on subtext. If you listen to Little Gold Men, you've heard us talk about it there. You can sign up to receive texts from us and text back and ask questions at joinsubtext.com slash still watching. Or you can text 213-652-6733. And as always, you can keep emailing us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, whether or not you are portrayed as a character on impeachment. Um, so in the meantime, Richard, where can people find you? I mean, I have to go through lots and lots of footage from upcoming shows to make sure that they got the open shelving in the kitchens, period, appropriate, <laughs> which is a lot, a lot of work, I'll tell you. Um, if I have any breaks from doing that, I will tweet from Rylaws and be writing reviews and other things at VF.com. Katie, until the penultimate episode, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'll be uh, ripping glasses of red wine out of the hands of everyone on Martha's Vineyard in August just to to get everyone on the up and up. Uh, there are rules in this society. Um, but uh, beyond that, I will be tweeting at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And as always, this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now 